Hello and welcome to Flavour Talks, the BSF's podcast exploring the wonderful world of flavours. Listen in to learn more about the people who make the food you eat taste great. So welcome to the new episode of Flavour Talk. My name is Andrea and I'm together with Aidan and tonight we'll be talking with Colin Scott. Welcome Colin, it's a great pleasure to have you here today. It's my pleasure uh, to be here. So can you introduce yourself, your name, where are you from? Okay, I'm Colin Scott, Colin, and I've actually been 40 plus years in the flavor industry. I actually began in 1973 which was a year after I graduated in chemistry, honours chemistry from the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. So I'm Scottish, but at the age of 23, I started in the flavour industry, as I say, and at that time I left Scotland to go to London and I never went back to Scotland to live. So more than two thirds of my life now has been spent outside Scotland. So I call myself British and... um, the reason I got into flavors was partly because I liked chemistry and I always was interested in chemistry and as a teenager was really interested in photography, both from the sort of artistic point of view of taking photographs, but I actually had a dark room with my twin brother and we developed photographs, all wet chemistry. It was still the prior to the digital camera age. And when I graduated from university, after sort of having a sort of um, gap year of a certain kind, not going anywhere special particularly, but just not entering the world of serious work, I saw an advert in the Times. In these days, there weren't really recruitment agencies. In the Times, there was an advert for a flavorist or a senior flavorist to join PFW in London. And then there was a footnote at the very end of the um, advert saying, also interested in employing a trainee, chemistry or food science graduate, graduate to um, be trained. And I answered the ad, I was invited down to London. I was interviewed. I was able to um, draw the um, chemical structure of geranial, I remember, which pleased the person interviewing me. And then I was given a sniff test of various raw materials, which was relatively easy with things like orange and lime and I don't know what else, um, benzaldehyde for almond. But I was stuck when they actually gave me something called dihydrocumarin. I had no words to describe it, but they understood why. It was a completely new scent or smell to me. And that's the story. They invited me to um, join them. And that's where I began. Between being a flavorist and trying to be an artist or trying to represent the reality. Flavorist has to be, has to have a lot of fantasy, has to be kind of artist, isn't it? I agree. I always saw, I was always interested and I, it was my best subject in school, chemistry. I also, in Scotland, the, the education system is pretty broad. It's not like England where you have to narrow it down to two or three subjects at um, age 18 or whatever to do A-levels. We did five, six, what we called higher levels in Scotland, 
at the age of 17. And so in Scotland, you had to do some art subject, even though, though you wanted to be a scientist and vice versa. In fact, you couldn't graduate from a university in Scotland without having at least what they called ordinary level English. And there were some brilliant people, engineers and things, mathematicians, I remember, who struggled for years after being able to graduate in theory from university, but still hadn't passed the English qualification. The reason being that in Scotland, the, the idea was that if you couldn't explain in English what you knew and what you'd learned at university, having a degree didn't matter because you had to be able to talk with colleagues, write reports, write scientific papers, etc. So English was as important. I actually remember going for some interviews when I was looking for a job. And one of the jobs that attracted me was going to the National Art Gallery of Scotland and Glasgow, where they were looking for a chemistry graduate to look at how they could better restore and wash and clean paintings. And so I was almost looking for something perhaps with an artistic bent as well as a kind of scientific bent. My twin brother and I were pretty good at art at school. There was one girl who was better than all of us, but we were usually second or third in art at school as well. So I think you need that, or it helps to have that kind of um, personality to be a good flavorist, because it's not just following analysis. You have to be able to see the bigger picture, and it may not be exactly authentic, the flavor you make, but it's going to be something that attracts people because it is an attractive composition you've made. Compounding or like making a recipe of a flavor is nearly like painting, painting something. So there are so many, you know, colors that are on the on the, the background that they are working together and uh, creating the final the final picture. So it's a really it's a really nice comparison between the two completely different worlds, but they can be mm -hmm kind of overlapping so that that's that's interesting i agree you you said that you, you you're scottish so what's your favorite drink or... well i mean my wife is mexican and i'm scottish so in terms of alcohol i think we have the best two spirits in the world <laughs> the sample i love tequila and i love scott whiskey i come from the Speyside area in scotland originally and I love Speyside Scotch whiskey. I also like others. I like bourbon whiskey too. So whiskey is my tipple. Tequila or mezcal is my wife's. When it comes to soft drinks, of course, Scotland's famous as being one of the few countries in the world where cola is not number one in the list of consumption. We have a concoction called Iron Brew made by AJ Barr and company, and um, that outsells cola in Scotland. How it tastes, because yeah, we are not all Scottish, so we don't know these this, uh, soft drinks, you know. Speaking of Scotland, I mean, it's sold in England too. It, I think it's sold in Russia too. It's quite popular in Russia, South Africa. When I was living in Turkey, they launched it in Turkey. So it's one of these really traditional soft drinks that contain botanicals and other things, at least a hundred years old or more which when the colas and things arrived in the UK in say the 1970s and Sprite and Cola and their great adverts sort of made many of the regional bottlers and soft drink makers fold. 
bars for some reason were able to to maintain and grow their business it's a citrus fruity vanilla rose concoction the formula of which is secret seemingly whether it's still true today one of the bar family actually mixed up the different components in a room by himself before it was then given to the factory to actually make the soft drink and traditionally it's um, drunk well all year of course but at new year with whiskey and things to celebrate new year i did read when trump was president that um he banned it from some of his golf resorts in scotland because it's bright orange in color artificially colored i mean I think I know the formula pretty well. It's got capsicum in it. It's got um, quinine in it. I think it might have um, caffeine in it. It's got an iron salt in it. Um, It's one of these really traditional, quite complex flavors, which people find attractive. I I don't particularly like um, Red Bull, the flavor, but again, it's that sort of fruity, complex, flavor that seems to attract people when it comes to drinks it's very it's a very peculiar one it can be compared to red bull in terms of it mm-hmm. tastes like something that you can't really point you know at the very first sight because it's as you said a bit floral a bit fruity i honestly think it's also quite herbal everyone's got their own idea i think a lot of people know basically what the key components are but getting exactly the same as the as the real product mm. The real products probably changed a lot. Prices go up, raw materials become difficult to obtain, etc. So probably the company that supplies the essence of flavoring to bars has to keep the quality and the taste the same as difficulties arrive, arrive and are solved and disappear. So whether it's exactly the same as it was before or not, of course, because of the introduction of the sugar tax to beverages, in the UK, bars were extremely brave, I thought, to actually, instead of go to a low sugar version with some sweetener and a full sugar version and let people change, they actually said, we're going to reduce the sugar 100% in everything. And they went, went ahead and did it and it seems to have worked for them. So I admired that. I thought that was a pretty good initiative of by them. I think it works quite well because it also has quinine, so it does have this kind of bitter side and perhaps adding sweeteners, it perhaps kind of weirdly works in some sort of way because obviously sweeteners can have this bitter aftertaste, so maybe the it maybe interrupts it somehow. It's quite clever. Maybe it doesn't seem to have um, stopped its consumption. I mean, I live quite near Corby in Northamptonshire where when the steel works in Glasgow or in Scotland closed down and transferred to Corby, a lot of Scottish people... Um, moved to Corby. This is many years now, and the steel making at Corby is long gone. But there's still a strong kind of Scottish um, presence there. And I remember going to visit a customer in Corby around about Christmas New Year, and the local Asda had to stock so much red, um, iron brew to satisfy the demand of the sort of Scottish at least ethnically Scottish um, population, they couldn't get it all in store. So there was like a 20 meter tunnel of iron brew cases as the entrance to the supermarket. So it's phenomenally popular. 
and some people I think drink it with, will accept no other product, which I find difficult to understand. But whoever designed that flavor, whether it was bars themselves who threw three or four, five, six, seven, whatever flavor together to make something unique, who knows? But it certainly works. And that's yeah. about a hundred years old, isn't it? Or something you were saying. It must be because a lot of these traditional yeah. drinks like dandelion and burdock and um, what's the one in England, which is, I um, can't remember now, in the north of England, there's different ones as well. I think everywhere you go, there used to be up until the 70s, 80s at the latest, lots of regional bottlers making lots of regional products. Mm. But, and they were, they were hand delivering them. They were going around the housing estates, delivering them. It's a bit like the day I remember you were able, as a, I think in the 1960s in Scotland, they even had vending machines for carbonated beverages at seaside resorts. So kids could go up to a vending machine and put in their money, and then they could mix. They, they probably had a red cola and a lime, a cherryade and the oranges and the lemons and things. But they often had buttons to say that instead of actually dispensing one drink, kids could press one or two or three buttons and make their own mixtures. And um, it sounds all very sort of 2000 and something rather than 1960, but these machines seem to have disappeared. But I remember them quite well as a kid at seaside resorts. There are so many of these drinks that they are popular only in one specific country Mm -hmm. and they are not known everywhere else. So uh, as you mentioned, Iron Brew, but I'm thinking from, from Italy, there are some drinks like Quinotto that you don't find anywhere else, but only in the place, for example. So also in Russia, I get to work in some... Russia, kwas? Kwas, yeah, kwas, obviously, as a fermented bread, but also as a a soda, there are some of these products um, that are very specific to to a place. Guarana in Brazil. That's very typical of Brazil, but not really seen anywhere else. Yeah. Cidral in Mexico. Doctors used to prescribe Cidral to mums for their babies when they were, or their children when they were sick in Mexico. Mexico, I think, is still the number one consumer of soft drinks in the world. When I lived there, I think um, the, must, the population, I don't know what it was then, there must have been 120 million, and they were selling so much um, soft drinks, Coca-Cola especially, that um, the I think the consumption per head, man, women, and children, was one and a quarter liters per day of full sugar colas. That is an enormous amount, but people I know, people in Mexico who drink it with their breakfast, with their lunch, with their tea, in between, is quite astonishing. I feel that things have become so good these days. I mean, I'm obviously quite young into the, the flavor world, but even like when I remember how flavors have changed a lot, and things have become better, all these diet and sugar-free versions. Is this because of flavorings becoming better and new and improved tastes? Like, for example, Coca-Cola. Now the zero version actually tastes pretty good, and I'd happily have that over now the, the sugared versions. It's been going on a long time. The need, the desire to remove some of or all of the sugar from the likes of Sprite and colas of various descriptions. And um, the first, I think, tab was the product that Cola first launched as a low-calorie product, and it wasn't that great. But um, I don't know what, how many iterations have been 
uh, gone now, but certainly the latest versions are very much better. Same with Pepsi. Pepsi Max is a pretty good um, product, I think, these days. There are some people who are very suspicious of um, artificial sweeteners of any kind, even of any sweetener, stevia and the type, which are known as natural sweeteners. But um, it's a long, hard process. And maybe one generation starts it of flavors and the next generation and maybe the third generation finally solve the problem. Mm. But they're sort of I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, as it were. They they couldn't do it faster if they um, didn't have the help. And the mistakes made, perhaps they didn't mistakes can actually teach you what doesn't work, which actually makes you get to the target faster sometimes. It's always a very very slow process to change a very established product because you have to uh, to put into the market see what is the reaction of the consumer and then face a lot of failures and then you have to come back reformulate put it back on the market fail again come back and then it takes a lot of time before actually you can go to the market with a improved version or like mm -hmm. a new formulation and I'm sure there's extensive testing done before the they launched it, but it still doesn't guarantee success because people tasting things in an artificial sort of malt test or in a sensory department don't react or act the same as they do when they're in a party or in a club or on holiday at the beach or whatever. So not always right, the sensory test, but it, certainly it eliminates things which are certainly not acceptable. You mentioned during your, your, your words that you, uh, you have been in Mexico, mentioning different countries. Is any of these places that you can call home or any of these places that you found a little bit more difficult to adapt yourself to the way of working or to the way of living? I suppose I left home, Scotland, to go to work in London and never went back. So. Is England a new country? Perhaps it is, perhaps it isn't. It's still Britain. But I went to Spain, stayed there for a couple of years, but learned quite soon that I didn't know enough to be in a smaller company where I wasn't learning too much. So I went back to join more a mainstream company. I then was offered a job in Latin America because I spoke some Spanish now, having worked in Spain. And I had to go to Switzerland for a year for orientation before going to, well, I had the choice of Mexico and Brazil, but in Portuguese, it's Portuguese in Brazil and Spanish in Mexico. So I thought better Mexico. And I'm glad I chose that. I met my wife there. I enjoyed my time there. I've also worked in the USA in Citrus and I've worked in Turkey for almost five and a half years, more or less. Plus after I'd retired, Mostly, I spent um, a whole year, as you know, working with you and Anya in um, Kerry in Nice in Ireland, but only working half a year, although I had a whole year to do it in. So, yes, I spent quite a lot of time outside the UK. I've enjoyed it. Honestly, it seemed to be, I seem to be able to, um, it's like everyone says it's, it's like this. When you go to a new country, everything's exciting, it's new, you're interested, there's things to do. So the first, I don't know, three, four months are great. And then 
you've been there for a while, it's now not new and you're missing people from home and friends and things. And so you get sort of that kind of um, negative sort of feeling a bit. But if you can get through that, then you just go out one day and you go to the shops and you buy something, you do something, you go and, and you go home and you realise that you've just acted exactly as you would have done at home. You're no longer feeling like a stranger. You're just one, one more person. And that, when you get to that stage, you know that's okay. And um, I've enjoyed everywhere I've been. I don't think I can say anywhere has been terrible. I can't. You do realize that everywhere has its good points and its bad points. And you have to sort of um, not hanker for things which are impossible in that area, but enjoy what they have to offer that you didn't have at home. And um, the only thing I would say about Mexico, although Mexico is special for me because I met my wife there and I've got family there, whereas I haven't in other places, is that um, the corruption element and things like that in Mexico, and I was there at a pretty safe time in Mexico. I think it's much more difficult now to live in Mexico, especially as an expat. But um, that was something that was quite hard to um, accept because... Although I think every country has corruption of one kind or another, that the, just the sort of blatant openness of it as part of the culture was a bit difficult to accept. But this compensation, it's a great country, great thing to do, great people. Yeah, I mean, Turkey, when I said to people I was going to Turkey, people said, oh, you're brave. But honestly, Turkey is a great country, fantastic people. Um, so generous and so hospitable, great food, beautiful country. It's a big country, hard workers. I still watch quite a lot of Netflix um, Turkish TV because um, and um, serials they make because they're fantastic. I mean, the quality of production and values of production of some of their sort of, they're not soaps, they're really sort of mini dramas that go maybe six, seven, eight episodes for one series and maybe do repeats. But um, there's some brilliant programs in Turkey and they have a really well-established um, film industry. I think they make more than 100, year, 100 films a year in Turkey. Some of them which wouldn't be of interest to a, a foreigner, but others which are sort of just simply fantastic films. I don't know if anyone's watched any, any of them. Um, that's the good thing about Turkey. I think they, when you go to places like Spain, everything's dubbed, and I don't like that at all. I think it's for lazy consumers. In Turkey, everything's in the original language with subtitles, but the funny thing there is that um, halfway through, I don't know whether it still happens, but certainly it's not that long ago when I was living there, they stopped the film halfway through to allow people to go out to the cinema to smoke and come back in again and start... No way. <laughs> Which interrupts some of the drama sometimes, but that's just shows you everywhere's different. It makes you laugh, but it's you get used to it. That's funny. That's really funny. So um, coming back to your uh, flavorist career, um, mm -hmm. you are mainly a sweet flavorist, aren't you? Sweetened beverage but you also have experience in savory can you tell us i mean how did you did you manage to acquire experience in sweet and beverage and in savory why did you work in savory too because sweet 
in savory are two words that usually yeah. go parallel you know if you are a sweet flavors you are a sweet flavors if you are savory flavors you are so so they never cross path how did you manage to do both so therefore i started in flavors in the early 70s and in these days they didn't separate there was much less savory activity than there is now it was in its infancy but basically the briefs came in and there was a group of flavorists and whether it was sweet beverage or savory you just did it and you were learning all the time as you did more of it you were allowed perhaps to sort of not take the first brief off the pile but maybe look down two or three four to see if one really suited you you thought but then um, we all did some savory and some beverage and some pharmaceutical and some confectionery flavor projects that was just the way it was done in these days we also had a lot more contact with perfumers and most modern flavors have because you were often next door to a fragrance lab certainly when i started there was a fragrance lab next door with a number of perfumers and when i went to spain there was a fragrance lab there so we often spoke to each other and shared ideas which i think was very helpful that's when i was in spain i first met the molecule hedion which i used in the most successful flavor i ever made and As soon as I smelled it, I said, that's great for lemon juice. But I never used it in Spain because I never had to make a lemon juice flavor. It wasn't necessary. Can you describe it? But... To make one back in the UK, I made a lemon juice flavor, which then became a kind of standard for low-calorie, artificially sweetened drinks for pharmaceutical applications and many more. So... Um, That's just the way it was. But I do realize now that um, as the industry became more complex and um, the companies became bigger and wanted people to be really experienced and really know how they produce their food or their beverages, they looked for experts in one section of flavoring. So people chose, I guess, what suited them best or they were given a choice from to try and so some people opted for the savory route other people opt opted for sweeters or um, beverage routes and different companies split it differently now i think there's some which are just sweet and savory others which have more sort of um divisions and flavors and they work closely with application people i mean one of the things i've noticed over the years in flavors when i first started it was all about molecules and inventing new things because it was a time 70s, 80s, when huge growth in GCMS, flavored molecules being made by very good chemists, sulfur chemists especially. And so you were always getting new chemicals to smell, taste, use in new products. And it was, it was fairly lax, I have to say, probably too lax, the way that you could see a chemical one day, put it in a formula the next day, show it to a customer the third day. And then if they liked it and wanted it, they... Poor people in chemistry labs have to find ways to produce not a few grams, but several kilos quickly. So obviously we got better at having some stage gates and things and not introducing things to customers until they were sort of almost at least ready to launch. And um, I think generalists are still a good idea to have in flavors, especially if you're working in a satellite lab and not in a sort of hub, a center, a uh, of a major company because that way you can cater better for the local demand, but you also need some experts. 
in certain areas which are demanding and require a lot of um, knowledge to begin with before you can use the molecules in the correct way, some savoury applications, meat specialists, etc. And um, the first time I ever saw, uh, I mean, when I first started off, it was all about the molecules. After that, it was people started looking at the application side, and instead of having sort of domestic science type application people, um, real experts from industry became part of the um, flavor companies. So they'd work for Nestle or they'd work for Mondelez, I would say now Cadbury, whatever. So they knew a lot about the actual process of using flavors in a factory of what processes they had to go through and when they were added and all that stuff. And that really helped flavors gain the knowledge to make flavors that could survive these processes. And then things changed and nutrition became more and more important. So I think the first time I saw a nutritionist in a food company or flavor company was in the 90s. I think it was Schweppes in America. I remember meeting a nutritionist who'd been brought in to help them improve the nutrition. Soft drinks were already getting a sort of dirty name as being empty calories, not good for you. They might provide refreshment, but there were so much better things to take for refreshment. But they were already thinking, how can we keep our products in the market and make them more um, compatible with what the new consumers wanted for their lifestyle and for their diets and things? And I think recently now we've seen a lot more of the good for you, nutrition, um product it, that that world now is opening up with flavors so that um it's not just making things taste good but they have to do you good and the flavor can be part of that so people are looking at like botanicals and um, raw materials which may have flavor but also have some something about them which, which are a micronutrient of some kind so like every other industry the flavor industry keeps changing and I'm sure it will change and change even as it matures, it will keep changing as consumers change and bizarre change. And being a flavorist, you you are also in a situation where you, you are putting together different uh, expertise and different groups. So you are between application, you have to know about your flavor in the final application. You have to know a little bit about analytical techniques. You have to know uh, in legislation, you have to know a little bit of everything because all these things are coming together in, in your formulation. So you, you were mentioning about gas chromatography and what is your, do you used to work on analytical tools as well, or you only took advantage of what the analytic are doing? When I first started, DCMS wasn't used for matching things. It was a lot of wet analysis and using thin layer chromatography to separate molecules like and staining things so you could identify vanilla, ethyl vanilla, helotropine, whatever, and vanilla flavor, etc. So the DCMS revolution really sort of helped people to begin matching flavors more seriously. And that changed the industry because obviously matching became more and more important. I suppose at times when Products, new products are not being launched very much. The only way to gain new business is to offer the match mm. and give better sales and give better price, etc. Can, can you explain what a match? 
mean? You a customer may give you a flavor, or sometimes they don't like to give you the flavor. They they only give you the finished product and says, We like this flavor. We'd like to have something that's as good as, same as this. If you can give us this, then we'll buy it from you. But it has to be less than this price because I guess they were looking for a, a, a more profitable, profitable product, etc. So Flavor started making copies either from the finished product or more likely from the flavor and using analytical tools like DCMS really help people. I mean, it can take you some of the way there. It hardly ever takes you all the way there. So there's still room, a lot of room for knowledge and experience and just plain effort to get closer to the final product. And sometimes you get very close and sometimes you get close enough, depending on the needs of the of the the customer. I always try to explain to salespeople that a perfect perfect match doesn't exist for many reasons because mm -hmm. even if me and you are compounding the same flavor with the same formulation, the final outcome can be different because we are using different raw materials or we are making small mistakes. For example, in sulfur, like mm -hmm. plus minus 1% can make a difference. So it's extremely hard to copy something 100%. You can get to 95, 99, but there are some things that make the matching pro process nearly impossible to, to, to reach. And there's something I agree. That... I mean, you never know how old the flavor you're matching is. And exactly. whatever you make is new and you'll send a new flavor and it, it will age and change with time. Perhaps fast, perhaps slow, but I agree with you. But um. Definitely some flavor companies have done very well by matching. I don't know whether they've done the industry a favor because obviously when you match something, you're not producing anything new in the market. You're just offering something at a better price. or And so you're probably eroding profit margins. And for sure, what's one thing I've noticed too in flavors that um, you could really charge quite a lot for a vanilla flavor and a lemon flavor for lemonade and things in when I first started. And now that's all. Anymore. I think there's much more transparency. There's buyers who come from Tesco and the like who know how to buy very keenly and they can really push down prices by offering out flavors for matching. And sometimes you do all that work and the only reason why you've been asked to do it is so that the buyer can go back to the original supplier and say, I've got a copy, it's two pounds per kilo less than yours, so I'll have to switch unless you can match that price. So all your good work could be for nothing because it's just a buyer's effort to um, exactly. strong arm the original supplier to make a cut in the, in the price. To so a good excuse. Business, I guess. How much of your time do you think, or how much of a flavorous time would be matching? Does it really just depend on on, on, on whatever the, the task is? Honestly, some flavor companies are matching companies. And then um, they just offer that service to people and say, send me something that you want to buy because it's closer to home. You can get it faster. We'll beat whoever's price it is by a margin. We'll give you fantastic service, whatever. And that's what they did. That was their business model. And it worked. Um, other companies, I think everyone matches, but other companies are trying to be more um, leading in the sense of using trend information and data 
about products being launched in different parts of the world and trying to give customers an idea of what the future is going to be like and then showing them flavors that match that idea of the future. Because at the end of the day, you don't get anything new. As I say, if you do get a flavor matched as a food or beverage manufacturer, you're going to put something on the market which is already out there. So unless you've got some special reason for people to buy from you rather than from anyone else, why would they buy from you? I mean, some people want to aim at the, um, they look at the statistics, which is the biggest selling, I don't know, strawberry ice cream flavor. Oh, we want that flavor then, so match it. And so that everyone then cl clusters in one area on a sensory map because they think that's what the consumer likes. And then all of, all of a sudden, along comes a disruptor, like, I don't know, fever tree with tonic water. Chouette had that market sewn up, supermarket own label was um, there too. But it was getting cost engineered. It wasn't very good. It was getting weakened. And honestly, people were buying expensive gin and putting rubbish tonic into it. And along comes someone and says, Let's make some really special tonics. If you're buying good gin, but you want to add some good tonic too. And within a number of years, it sort of wiped Schweppes out of that market and taken it over. So it shows that introducing something new and different and better is often a better policy. But yeah. because a lot of um, limited companies are thinking about the next quarter or that year rather than 10 years down the line or whatever we've got to or five years down the line we'll be able to launch something that will be really profitable for us as some companies can do then that's what they tend to look at next year's or next month's um figures it's about a kind of short term versus a long term mm -hmm. i mean i know why people want things urgently sometimes but you get the impression sometimes the urgency thing was done to death and you can really break all the rules sometimes to get something out to a customer and then two or three or four days later you might phone up and find out what's happened they hadn't tested it yet you wonder what all the struggle was for but you can't say that of course to a customer you just have to sort of grin and bear it yeah everybody is, is actually saying that matching is very is very boring which is probably not the most interesting thing to do as a flavorist but at the same time it's a great exercise because it's difficult i mean it's very difficult to get to the exact or like as close as possible recipe to the target so it's a very difficult exercise i believe and during your career is there a project that you say okay that's something that i would love to know the solution i would love to know the real recipe because I couldn't get there at, you know, at any cost. I think there's a number, but I do remember two instances, not, not that I was one of the people matching, at least one of the times I wasn't. There was an extremely good ham flavor from, I think, a company in Germany that I saw and others in the company saw, and we all thought it was fantastic, but we were never able to get very close to it. And I do also remember working with a flavor who would try to work to match a Quest chocolate flavor, which had a kind of cherry note in it, very nice fruity note. And again, every time we tasted it, we loved it, but getting the same taste wasn't possible for us. So 
you never know. Sometimes there's captured materials there, which you don't have, and you'll never be able to match it. Or sometimes there's so many sort of trace materials that are not picked out by GCMS, and therefore you're struggling, and you try lots of different essential oils and things to see to get to get that profile that you're missing. And you can do a pretty good job, recently, decent job, but depends how close closes for the customer. Sometimes they want an absolute match. Very difficult, as you say. If they want something that's near enough, well, most people can get to it eventually. But it's, as you say, it's hard. I didn't find it particularly boring because I think you always learn something matching and you understood better at the end of the match how someone had put together this particular flavor. And I always found out that even though the flavor in a bottle sometimes didn't seem to be that outstanding in terms of its quality, when you put it into the base or into a approximate base of the product that it was going into and then which the customer would test it, it always worked. And it probably these a lot of these flavors were added to products at the time when I don't think it happened so much now, but it was pretty common when I was in my earlier years in the industry that, um, I don't know, Unilever wanted a new vanilla for their mass market ice cream. And they asked 20 companies to send them their best vanilla flavor for this sort of ice cream at a maximum price of X. And in these days, they had enough staff and enough people and enough time to put these 20 flavors in at maybe different dosages into an ice cream and let them age and then taste them. And they'd be quite happy, whether it was a big company or a small company's product, that was <coughs> that one the taste testing part of the exercise. They were very happy then to say, okay, you've got the new business because you've got, you gave us the best flavor. But I think now it's much more about getting onto key supplier lists and being there at the right time with the right product, getting it on someone's desk early and early in the project. So it becomes a sort of desired flavor to beat or maybe will never be beaten when the product is launched, finally. Matching, you always learn something from, I think. But it's a sort of really sort of key product for a food company or a beverage company or even a tobacco company. I remember in Turkey, I mean, two apple flavor, I think it's um, synergy, not um, Simrise flavor for shisha tobacco is massive. It's probably number one red and green apple mix with a lot of aniseed in it or fennel. And um, we, we used to get people say, well, I want a match of this, I want a match of this. And that's fine because um, they wanted perhaps to replace the civilized flavor at a better price or get be able to buy smaller order amounts, etc. But then um, you wonder if, if, it was, if, it, if you were in a, say, a tobacco company and you were buying the Simrise Two Apple and it was your star product and gained lots of sales, it was good profit for you, why would you ever de- jeopardize that business and letting down all your customers who have been faithful to you just for a slightly um, reduced price from someone else. Why would you sort of jeopardize your career almost to say, oh, I can get a pound off this or a euro off this when you're already making a massive profit from having a really good flavor that really is appreciated by the customers. So I think matching is probably better done with products which are sort of taken over nicely, but they're not sort of star products. 
and they can be interchanged and perhaps people don't buy them that often. Maybe they're products that you buy once and have it in your store cupboard and then you replenish it maybe once a month rather than every day or every second day or whatever when. So products which have a longer life, perhaps sometimes you can match more easily because um, consumers forget the taste from one month to the next and are quite happy to, to, to accept the new product. It's difficult. Some people swear by matching it gets you where you want to be, selling flavors. Other people, as you say, hate matching and think it's a waste of time and boring. So I would say, well, if you're in charge of these people, why not have a matching team, people who seem to be good at it and like doing it, and let the creative people who want to be creating new things create to their heart's content, and then you'll have the best of both ends, both worlds. Do you consider yourself a creative flavorist? Someone or... has to be creative in flavors. I'm quite creative with raw materials. I think I can often see where a new material can be used, not always in the obvious place. I keep, I've talked before about them um, influenced by perfumery. I think sometimes the trends in perfumes can give you new ideas to use in flavors. For instance, at one time during the time, when was poison and things like that launched? Was that in the 80s? It yes, is, I think, yeah. And simply that came out of an exercise perfumers, which and they called it the overdose. Mm -hmm. So that they'd grown up being told by their uh, mentors and trainers that this material was used between 4% and 6% of the fragrance. And this material was used at 1% of the fragrance. And this one you could use 10% of the fragrance. And then someone said, well, let's just use overdose levels and see what happens. And I think someone use 10 times more of some materials in a fragrance and it came out being really light. And I think that's how perhaps poison was um, born. Not the actual final formulation, but the idea came from just doing something different. Because at the end of the day, to be different with your end product, you have to start with some either different molecules or some different ideas, because otherwise it's not going to be different. It's going to be just another juggle of the same 20 chemicals that's always you've always used and that's not very exciting anymore. I find it quite interesting when you speak about perfume there, Colin, because I'm a very yes. big perfume fan. For people out there, what is the difference between a perfume and a flavour? Do they share commonalities and what makes them different? Well, I mean, perfumers do it all by the nose. They don't taste anything, so it's all how, it's, how it smells and it might taste awful, whereas a flavourist obviously has to talk Think about the aroma or the perfume of the of the flavor in the food, but also the final taste. Maybe 50% of the materials are common, not necessarily the same purity, because sometimes a perfume grade has to be better than a flavor grade. Mm -hmm. And then 50% of the raw materials are probably different. You can be more creative in fragrance because you're not trying to imitate nature often. You may make a lavender base and a jasmine base and a rose base and all that stuff or an accord or whatever they call them but then you're putting together different notes to recreate an experience or a thought or an imagination which smells great and people attract people whereas in flavors perhaps it's more down to earth we're trying to make things taste like what made, nature's made that we enjoy eating like you want strawberry flavors to taste the strawberry and apple flavors to taste the apple. And yes, you can tweak them a bit, 
and make them more interesting or at least different to give people different ideas of what's possible. But um, you can't go too far away from nature unless you're producing something like a cola, which is a, doesn't occur in nature and it's a man-made composition. And Red Bull and colas and a few other things have become very successful flavors. So people do like sometimes flavors which don't reflect anything in nature. They, they just taste good. But um, in general, people want authenticity these days at least. So we are here, we are part of the BSF, we are part of the British Society of Flavorists. And how was your experience with the BSF? You have been president in 1996, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the experience with it? Now, how was the BSF when you were the president? Completely different. It was a different world. We used to go to London. We met in person. It was a way to network. We didn't have the phones and other media to find out things. So you talk to people. And it was part social, part business. And um, the 80s changed things a lot in Britain because it became a lot more professional. And um, talking to perhaps the competition was discouraged a bit. And people thought it was a bit of a job shop. So you, people could be tapped up for sort of changing companies quite quickly at these sort of meetings. So it became less supported. And just, it just became old-fashioned. Sometimes things are right for their age, but eventually they run out of steam. So I got involved with the Flavor Society because I think I was asked to join, and I said, OK, I'll give it a go. And um, eventually I became president. I was honoured to be the president. I did find it a long time because we had... the at that time, two years of vice president, two years of president, two years of um, immediate past president. And that was probably a bit lengthy. It's, I don't know, the perfumers had one year, one year, one year, and probably a three-year stint was probably more sort of um, family-friendly than the six-year stint you sort of um, committed to when you joined the society, especially as one of the sort of um, council members. I'm glad it's been revived because it was, was dying on its feet. And I did get involved still with some of the technical stuff and the teaching side of um, the BSF. So I've always been very much a supporter of the University of Reading and BSF and IFIAT flavorous training course out at Reading. I think during the first few years of existence, there were no British people sent by their companies to um, that course. They were all from out of the UK. Apart from myself, I think I sent two, three, four people to that. But I thought it was an extremely fast way to learn a lot and understand better what the flavor industry was about. And I think the fact that despite the pandemic, we were able to run it again this year, and it's been running for 20 years now, and there's nothing really like it at all in the world. It's a really great thing to be involved with. So I'm glad I'm still involved and aim to keep being involved for some time. But um, I'm really glad what the younger members of the society have done for the for the BSF and um, using social media tools and all sorts of other things and um, LinkedIn and publishing stuff and making things interesting for people. 
what people didn't understand when we were involved was that um, we were all volunteers. We didn't have any professional help. We had a secretary who did bits and pieces for us, but he was employed too, or she was employed. So really, we didn't have the time to make it really the way we'd like to have done it. But slowly, the penny dropped that you needed some help and you couldn't sort of um, plan big events, especially meetings or social events without a bit of help from outside. And there's event organisers now who can do that all for you. So I think we've just moved with the times, as has the American Society of Flavour Chemists, of which I think I'm a retired member, so I, I don't really get any information from them these days. But um, they're a different society because it's only open to the technical people, whereas I think we were a bit wiser as the BSF and that allowed the salespeople and the application people and other affiliated roles in flavors to join too, because especially salespeople, they tend to control the money or the marketing people so that um, they were sort of um, quite good at sending people to some of the meetings to make them profitable and allow us to do some of the training events. That was one of the aims of the society and still is. So I'm glad you're there and other people have joined. It seems to be back in favor. I think you're doing a great job. And um, like an idea like these podcasts, it's a modern way of doing things. So great, great stuff. I'm really pleased. Oh, it's absolutely fascinating from our side. So uh, thank you for sharing your uh, mm -hmm. comments on the BSF. And you mentioned about the ready course yes. uh, for flavors. What is it? I mean, can you tell us how is it structured when it was born? I've been involved since the start, sometimes a lot, sometimes a little, apart from when I wasn't available because I was living outside the UK. But basically, the idea was that some companies had organized training schools for flavorists because it's a long training time. That's one thing I would tell anyone joining the flavor industry especially someone who's done well at school and ticked all the right boxes and got really good results and gone to university and hit the right boxes and got really good results. And they've been moving ahead, moving ahead, moving ahead, moving ahead. And I guess when they, they start work, they want to keep that pace of development and moving ahead and moving ahead and bigger and better things, which is great, that attitude. I like it. However, in flavors, there's a hell of a lot of learning before you can really sort of um, shoot off and aim for the stars. Whether it's two years or less or four years or more, I don't know, but there's a long learning period. So people get a bit frustrated sometimes because they think they should be moving on. Perhaps they see colleagues who've entered different um, trades or careers making faster progress because they can sort of really sort of hit the road running, whereas flavors have to have this real learning um, episode in their career before they can really start becoming creative flavorists or flavorists. That's something that has to be considered for people joining as a flavorist. There is a long learning period where, and there's not, nowadays I think some of the bigger companies have their own training schools and they invite maybe, I don't know how many people, not huge numbers of people, but then um, they probably tell them that out of a dozen people that start this course, maybe a quarter, a third, at most a half will ever become flavors because you'll really find out if it suits you and 
whether you suit flavoring quite quickly in this course, but they often make a guarantee, these schools, that if you don't make it as a flavorist, I'm sure we can find mm. other areas in the company where you can perform well and make a career because with, they often go to the best universities and get really good, able people to enter as flavorists. I'm not sure if that's actually opening the pool of trainee flavorists to enough different disciplines and enough different kind of people because when I first started, we had really, really good flavorists who knew no chemistry, who had wandered into the flavor industry by chance, maybe worked in a sample department or a QC department, showed a bit of interest. Oh, what are you making there? Mm, it smells like this. And eventually they might get a lab tech job in a flavor lab. And all of a sudden they were learning to be a flavor. It's a, slow, a slower road than perhaps a graduate entry mm. trainee. But some marvelous flavors exist and haven't existed in the flavor industry without any sort of formal science training. Although it's more difficult, I think, every day because a lot of the briefs are quite technical now compared to what they used to be. The Reading course really can give people a good insight of what the life of a flavorist is like. And they get to know how they can um, improve themselves when they get back to their place of work. Or at least it's a way into the flavor industry, which I think now is it's reasonably difficult to find a job in the flavor industry because there's not a huge number of flavors in the world. You probably learn in three weeks what it might take six months to learn as a new graduate entering a flavor company, unless they have their own training programs that you've gone through. Nowadays, a lot of the companies have their own training programs. So a lot of the candidates we get from for the Reading course come from smaller companies, and that's a great service to the industry, which I'm glad the flavors, the Society of Flavors can do. They're actually helping some of the smaller companies who maybe not have the budget or the ability to have trainees or have a school to train trainees. Then at least they can use this course as a way to really train people to make them useful quickly in an environment where they often have relatively few, few staff and they're trying to sort of make an impact in the business with their customers. No, it's a really good, I think the, the whole thing worked well and hopefully we'll be able to start again in May 2022 with a new course. Yeah, we'll That's keep it going. And the good thing about Reading too is that they always try to include a student, a, a post-grad student from the university mm -hmm to be part of the course because they know the university, they can help all the people at the course get how to get around, what to do in Reading, et cetera, et cetera. So we try to make it as, as user-friendly as possible so that people do it, have a great time as well as learn a lot. So what do you think about the Flavorist community, how it evolved in time? Do you think that it has become more inclusive and diverse over the years? or it has been steady, like staying the same over the, the, the years that you have worked in it? It's like most things, I mean, when there's more people go to university, people, the grades have been going up, people have been working hard, studying for masters, for PhDs. So there's a really real good pool of talent for flavor companies to interview and talk to and invite to be interns or whatever in a course 
or to work there for a summer job or whatever. And so it's very hard, I think, for people without a really good degree from a really good university to even get onto these things now to be considered. I mean, my daughter works in recruitment and she tells me that, I mean, what you do, you have a job and you have 200 CVs. You haven't got the time to go through them. So they have machines that can read CVs and look for certain things, some things which put you in the, we'll see that person and we'll speak to that person pile and other things on a CV that will say reject. And so they might take the 200 down to 20 and then they might read some of these things and maybe two, three people only get interviewed for the final job. So it's pretty tough to get even an interview to be a flavorist what kind of things do you want on there is like a good things to add there to get you know you know you're saying you could get rejection i'm quite interested what the things you you know any key words i think there are key words and um just general attitude to work i think i mean one of the things she says is that um people who have had a comfortable existence because they've had they've been at very good schools and they've gone to a good university and they've had lots of help and maybe private tuition if necessary and blah, blah, blah. And um, but they've never had a sort of part-time job and they've never actually had to sort of turn up at nine o'clock and work till six o'clock and be there every day. And things like that. You think, well, how resilient are these people going to be when they're thrown into a job where meant to be there on time and do the work that's required and you might have to stay late and things like that so i think it's the non it's it's different stuff from the actual qualifications to be able to do the job maybe there's enough people on your list to do it but you want people who have the sort of the drive and the self-starting ability to really make an impact quickly in their careers that's i think what people are looking for now we, we hear a lot about mental health and things like that during the pandemic. But um, I think you do need some resilience, especially in something like flavors, flavors because um, you get rejected. I mean, you may work on a project. I don't know how competitive it might be. You might have been on your own. You might have been working against four different companies. You never know exactly. But um, you can work. You think you've done a good job, but it gets rejected and someone else or some other company wins the brief. So you have to be able to not take that personally and just say I'll do better next time or at least I learned something about that flavor and I can make a better one next time etc that so you need a little bit of um, steel I suppose to be a good flavorist I mean some people find that the pressure of having a blank sheet of paper and being told make a pomegranate flavor can be quite it's something that a lot of people who modern education tends to be this is what you should say in the exam, this is what they learn. So they learn how to pass exams. They learn how to give back to the professors and the lecturers what they've been told. When it comes to actually having a blank sheet of paper in front of you and saying, okay, now with what you've learned, you can now make a X, Y, or Z flavor. It can be quite a sort of um, shock for some people because they say, well, well, how do I do that? Tell me what I have to do. I said, no, the whole idea of the course is that you have to build up the knowledge to be able to do this yourself. This is what a favourite job is. So if you find that hard, it's probably not the job for you. And we have had some really good candidates at the University of Reading course who have 
are working in the flavor industry and they're very useful to their companies because they know a lot about flavor chemistry and molecules and stability and all sorts of things. But actually putting together something that an animal will eat or a person will drink is something that's almost foreign to them. I think most people in the flavor industry are interested in food. And if you're not that interested in food, perhaps it's not the job for you because if you if you don't really enjoy things and if anything will do a quick snack and I'm off to do something else, that's probably not the life of our flavors. They tend to eat and smell and taste things and they know what's good and not so good. And they seek out what they really want from the many products on the consumer shelf in a supermarket, etc. So perhaps you need that extra bit in flavors, sort of some interest in food, seeking out the novel especially and not be satisfied with what is because we're always pushing forward to um, make the next best thing, next new thing. One of the dangers in flavor companies is that the people who work in them and make flavors and offer them to customers are <laughs> a step ahead of your average consumer in terms of accepting new products, new foods, new ideas in food. Maybe the time difference between the sort of the insiders and the sort of general public catching up is shortening. But um, one of the secrets of success and flavors I've seen in my years is that you can't launch something too late because someone else has done it and you've missed the boat. If you launch something which is really good, but too early before your general public, the mass consumption buyers, want it or need it or even know about it, you can also miss the boat. And one thing I've noticed is that um, when I first started in flavors, it was mostly chemical companies that owned or bought flavor houses. Flavor houses probably started off as sort of spice traders or essential oil houses, did a little bit of flavor creation, then got into the chemical side, producing molecules, etc. But um, they definitely didn't really do much consumer research or um, trend, insight, information, see what was being launched in different parts of the world and try to sort of show that might be the next big thing in a different country, etc. And trickling down from fine restaurants into sort of fast, casual restaurants for the mass market and things. I've noticed that some of the food companies that eventually got flavor houses in, under their belt they were making food every day, or well, part of their company was making food and beverage every day for, for real people who went to real supermarkets and bought their real products. And I must say they were experts, I thought, compared to many of the sort of more chemical, molecule-based flavor companies of knowing when it was a good time to launch something new. And I do remember cases in the flavor industry where a good idea didn't work because it was just launched too soon. Thai food, I remember mm. everyone thought this was the time for Thai food. We had, we had Indian and other things were coming and Oriental and Thai. And um, I remember launching some sort of Thai flavor type products in the savory area and it just didn't work. It was too early. The people who made them and the people who decided this was a good thing and had got information, but only looking at sort of that, the fast adapters of new ideas. And if you are a fast adapter of new food, as quite a lot of people in Britain are these days, so I, th I think we're quite good at 
accepting new foods and trying them. And if we like them, we want more of them and we dig deeper and want more authentic, etc. But on this occasion, they thought that their sort of desire to eat Thai food and things like that was already a mass market thing. And it wasn't. It was a relatively small thing that was happening and may have led to bigger things given time, but it didn't. So you don't see that many Thai flavored products on the supermarket compared to um, Indian, Chinese, etc. now Middle Eastern, whatever. So I think timing is really essential in the launch of new products and showing people new flavors because you have to sort of be aware of it takes time for the fast adapters setting a trend which then trickles slowly into the mass market and is adopted in different ways by different people until it becomes something mainstream. That's, I mean, obviously in my day, when I first started in flavors, you really could show someone a flavor and say, this is great, why don't you try it? And you didn't have to have any evidence behind that. You just look, we've, made, we've got a new molecule, it makes this great, I don't know, strawberry flavor, and it's gonna make your product taste great. And someone says, oh yeah, I really like that, I'm gonna try that, and you made a sale. I think you couldn't turn up anywhere, even a small company who made food or beverage these days without the information to show that this year's thing is X or coming quickly is this sort of cuisine or this trend of adding botan botanicals is going to get really stronger that now is the time to act and all these things. So a big thing that has to be, flavors have to learn now is that they might think their products are great and hopefully they are great because they've made a really good flavor and done the best job they can, but it doesn't mean it's what the customer wants. It really has to be customer, consumer-led these days so that um, consumer data is can be collected much more easily now and trends can be examined and collected and examined much more easily now with all the ele electronic help. And I think that really is the way to go in the future. You really have to be very aware of what customers and consumers want. If you wait until you're asked, it's probably too late because you haven't got time to develop it. But if you can anticipate the following years or two years ahead, tastes and desires and needs, then you've got a really, chance, really good chance of having good success. And there are so many frames where the flavorists have to formulate. So it can be legislation, it can be halal, it can be now the new organic trend so it's not gonna be that easy maybe in the past was like okay i have this fantastic strawberry flavor it's synthetic everything is fine but now it has to be suitable for that specific application that specific market that specific moment exactly what's your opinion about artificial intelligence in the flavor industry in do you, do you see it as a thread for the flavorist in the future you can see it as a tool if you can collect data about what's been successful in the past and what's successful in different places and then look if there's common trends within these flavors that have made them successful is it because the strawberries that have been successful have always had this combination of ingredients in them apart from other things which are different or this solvent works better in that application whatever i think you can really sort of search data and try to find reasons why this is the sort of key structure of the formula that needs that needs to be made to win in the future. And um, 
that would be a help. Maybe instead of starting from scratch, the AI or whatever it is can give you a sort of guideline formula of what to use, what not to use for a certain application, for a certain project. And therefore you'll cut development time down. I was speaking earlier about trying to anticipate the market of what consumers want. But if you can shorten development times, you'll be closer to what's actually happening now and be able to develop things quicker, quicker for now and therefore be able to steal a march in your competition, I think. So I think there's definitely reasons where I believe that an AI and other things will help people develop faster, quicker, better flavors that really work and actually please consumers if it's based on consumer data of what's won in the past. Yeah, I think it's a bit like the music industry in the sense that um, a lot of music, I started in the flavors in the 70s where bands formed and did their own thing and some of them were successful and some were not. But there was a lot of creativity and all that stuff. But slowly the corporate world got their sort of um, greasy fingers over the whole thing and it became much more market-led and um, tailored to meet a specific audience need, etc. And groups have been manufactured and have been very successful. But there's always an element about the ones which are really successful, which hasn't been sort of manufactured. It's either because of the people in them or whatever other reason. So I think working together with all this um, new technology would be a really strong way. I don't think the time yet has come when machines will be able to make really new different flavorings, but they might be able to help flavors to do them much faster mm-hmm. and also to try things that they've never tried before. Because actually, how do you make something new? As I said before, you have to do something new and try to use new materials in different places to create something that makes something that is perceived as better by the majority of people. Imagine to create a strawberry with a formulation that is completely different from what we know at the moment, like not putting together standard esters and furanol, but having the same taste at the end with a completely different formulation. I'm not sure if the formula can be completely different. I think there can be elements within the formula which are completely different. That will then create new tastes, which will then hopefully be very much approved and um, will delight the consumer and make them want to buy that product. That's, at the end of the day, that's what flavors are trying to do, delight consumers so that they prefer one product over another. And there's lots of other reasons why they like products, by price, by what the bat label says, by the nutritional offering, by whatever. We see a lot of new work done these days on plant-based where people are trying to recreate and get people to um, reduce their animal um, meat and or dairy consumption for the good of the planet. And they're trying to replace that. And then I I actually haven't tasted many of the products in the market. I've never been a burger person, so I don't really bother about these things. I'd be interested enough to taste them should I have an opportunity. I wouldn't seek them out to eat at home. But I'm sure that the first ones weren't that great. Maybe good enough to launch to start. 
but I'm sure they'll get better and better to the point where they really are pretty good. I think that that requires both all the technology that's gone into producing and making acceptable copies of um, animal tissue and things like that, but also it'll be down to flavors who have created something completely new to give the consumer the delight they're looking for when they eat or, or yeah. drink products. You have been living in different countries. Can you name like some food that you would say, okay, this is my favorite food in each country that you have lived Oof. in? That's like Turkey, hard. Mexico, yeah, Spain. Yeah, that's so hard because um, it's what time of year is it? Is it hot weather, cold weather? Honestly, I would say that um, when it comes to a favorite taste, I like bitter things. Yeah. Okay. So things like the quality of coffee when I was young compared to now has just quality now. You can get really good coffee everywhere now. In the past, you got terrible coffee everywhere. So, and I love the taste of good coffee and they really are well catered for that nowadays. I also like bitter beer. So high, high hop IPA beer is my favorite beer. And you mentioned things like quinotto and other Italian specialties with herbs, vermouths, like things vermouth, like that, all the things like that. I love these sort of um, herbal, orangey, whatever, the lights that come from Italy. And um, one of the things I don't like, though, is when bitterness goes over into burnt Mm. And I really, my favorite chef, not my favorite food, but my favorite chef, I would say, is Jose Andres, who's Spanish, but has been working in the USA for, I don't know, 20 plus years. But he was, I think he still is a pal of Ferran Adria, of the famous El Bulli in Catalonia in Spain. That was the world's best restaurant for several years. And it was all about molecular gastronomy and things like that which Heston Blumenthal in the UK took over the role at one stage, although he's been lying a, a bit low these days. But then Jose Andres says that we cook meat wrongly. And he says you need a meat thermometer to cook meat. And you know what internal temperature it should be. And he talked about the physics of cooking meat, because he says that if you roast it at high temperatures, and I see on the TV all the time, these chefs say you've got to put sear on it and they've got really high flames. You even see people in barbecues putting the steak straight onto the coals, not even over a grill, give it a good sear and all that stuff. And I want to say, this makes it taste burnt for me and that's too bitter and it spoils my enjoyment. I met Jose Andres, who just got, I think, was it 100,000 or 200,000 US dollars from Jeff Bezos of Amazon fame as a gift to continue with that. He has a charity that feeds, a non-profit making charity. That's aim is to feed people after a disaster anywhere in the world. But he, he's a, so he's a really good guy. He's, he, he's a great chef, but he's also got a great sort of community instinct and wants to help people who've done poorer than he has, because he's really excelled in his career of a chef. But he says that um, you should turn down the temperature cooking meat because if you create a sear on the outside, you have this dry 
dehydrated bit on the outside, and then you have the internal bit not cooked properly because that sear prevents the heat getting through to the middle of the meat. So you get raw in the middle and seared on the outside, a bit like some barbecues you go to where everything's black but still raw in the middle. And he says, turn down the volume on the heat and cook it much slower. And so the heat transfers much better. Stick a meat thermometer in the middle and heat and trust that to tell you when it's ready. And then if you do want to put a sear on the outside, by all means, but do it after it's cooked. Heston Blubertal used to sort of um, freeze-dry kind of um, gravy and sauces, and he would actually do some very low um, temperature experimentation with the support of Reading University. Actually, the biologist at Reading University was keen that he didn't kill anyone by doing it at too low temperature. So I think we came to the agreement that 63 degrees was the lowest to go before it was fit for um, for um, human consumption. But um, he used to roll things in spray and freeze-dried gravy and things like that to give it that brownness that people are expecting. Jose Andres says, sear it in the pan after you've cooked it. And so I really find exactly that. I think some of the you go into places and they've followed all these TV chefs. And I just don't like it. It burn things nowadays. You get lettuce that's been burnt and other things that have been burnt. I'd like, like a bit of a sort of caramelization like anyone else. But sometimes it goes too far. Yeah, that's too much. Yeah. I do remember actually offending a fish and chip or chop owner up in the north of England a few years ago. I don't know what the word is now, but um, in fish and chip shops in the north of England, you know, when they fry fish and chips and some of the batter and other things, the bits of potato yeah. are not collected when they sort of yeah. take the basket out of the frying oil. They sort of clean it now and again, and they put this sort of scrap material, as I would call it, into a corner. And they then sort of offer it to people as a special treat. <laughs> so I remember ordering my fish and chip chops. I think it was somewhere in Hull or near to Hull, where I did it. And... He offered, I can't remember what the word they used for this. They said, do you want some eggs? And I said, oh, you mean all these burnt bits? And I, I offended him because he was trying to offer me a treat. But I really find that burnt, over-caramelized taste very offensive. I think I'm quite sensitive to bitter that way. I do love the right amount of bitter in food. So that's my sort of favorite food in many ways. Okay, that's an interesting answer. So not really like a... A plate, but a taste that is yeah. I would have thought haggis neeps and tatties, you being Scottish. <laughs> I do love a haggis. It's something that's a um, fantastic dish. I really like neeps and tatties and haggis, and I will be having some on the 30th of November, whatever it is in St. Andrew's Day. Good, good. And then again on the 25th of January, which is Burns Night and all that stuff. And my Mexican wife likes it too, as do all my family who were born in, in England, so... Keeping that tradition alive for sure. Great excuse. We also have McSween's um, vegetarian haggis to offer the the vegetarians amongst us too. It's a great way to put tradition and people together. Yes. No, Colin. Look, uh, I think I would spend hours and hours and hours listening to you because it, 
it has been really really great to go through your career to go yeah. through experience you know events people that you mentioned so i really enjoyed talking with you listening to you and i really hope that hope that everybody uh, will enjoy this conversation now we i thank you so much for taking the time to be with us with the with the bsf and being the guest of the flavor talk so thank you well, thank, thank you so you much Colin. for the invitation i enjoyed it i hope i didn't ramble too much not at all it's I a really fantastic um, industry to work in and i'm still i still work a few days a month i don't do too much i don't want to do too much but um, i'd miss it i think if i stopped cold turkey and certainly the Reading University course is something that um, I'll try to keep on doing as long as I can. And I really hope to see you again, maybe in Reading or maybe in Amsterdam yeah. or who knows. Yeah. I hope to meet you in person. That'd be cool. Yeah. I heard our fire alarm go off downstairs in the kitchen. I don't know whether my wife was doing some searing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> go and check yeah, it out. Making before it. Me. She's making a nice burnt steak. <laughs> I don't mind steak that's cooked in a minute or two. You can't see that too much, but a piece of sort of big piece of meat that that's going to go into the oven for a bit of time after it's been seared. I think that's the bit he, he says that it's all wrong. And I think he's actually. I think um, Jose Andres actually studied, or he was became a sort of. Um, I can't remember the story now. I didn't read a bit about it because I have some of his cookbooks and. Um, I think he was invited by a university in the USA to become, or to give a course, both on Hispanic studies and how food was influenced by all sorts of people from the Jewish people, the Spanish people, and how the reason, I think, I think he's got this thing about how Jewish food traditions had penetrated Spanish um, cooking and Moorish, obviously the Arab connection and things like that. So I think he's a really fascinating guy. And um, I think he did get involved with a physics of food cooking and things course at a university in, in the USA. So if you haven't seen his recipes, he's famous for sort of what he calls small plates or tapas, but modern. I think that was the first thing he did. I think he's moved on to other things as well, but um, definitely a re revolutionary and very able chef. I will probably be writing about him after, mm. after okay. this conversation. So folks, thank you for the invite. It was good. All the best to you all and have a good evening. All right. Thank, thank you. you. All the best. Take care. Ciao then. This has been a deep dive into the fascinating world of flavours with BSF Flavour Talks. I hope that you've seen there's much more behind flavours. It is hard to acquire that right level of experience in order to create the perfect taste. If you've worked up an appetite for flavour signs, stay tuned for more episodes and help support our podcast by sharing it with others on social media or leave us a review.